2: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 209. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to Gideon shalak about the technology used on the wall project in China and Mongolia. Let's get to it. Welcome
2: to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going? It's going all right. I'm back in the States for a bit right now. I was in Saudi, uh, as you know, working on a variety of projects. The last one, I can't talk about too much, again, being a CRM project, but uh, we found some very significant archaeology on a site going back into the, the Middle Ages and perhaps Some levels as early as pre Islamic, which was really, really cool. Wow. And and then I came back because I was supposed to go out to Lagash, you know, uh, where I've been working the last few years. Uh, And the project got bumped a week. And then a week later, it got bumped another week. And a few days ago, it (laughs) got canceled entirely for the season. Uh, So now I'm at home spinning my wheels, hoping to get back in the field. Because it turns (laughs) out that, you know, ever since I got back into this field archaeology thing, I'd really much rather be in the field than at home. Uh, how, How are you doing, Chris? Last I talked to you, we were chatting on Slack and you were in Greece of all places.
1: Yeah. So we just got back about a week ago. We spent a month in Greece. The first part was actually the last week of September uh, on a cruise for my wife's birthday. That's what prompted us to go there was uh, to do this cruise. But even that was cool from an archaeological standpoint, because we went up through the Adriatic and went to Dubrovnik and Split in Croatia, Uh, went to Montenegro and then down to Corfu Mm -hmm. and then back to Athens. And then uh, for the next few weeks, we, we spent a week on the island of Naxos, which was super cool. The birthplace of Zeus, apparently, in a cave that you're not allowed to go to. And then um, a week on Crete, and then the last week was spent in Athens doing all the the big archaeology stuff in Athens, like the Parthenon and the whole Acropolis, I should say, and and a bunch of other stuff. So, if anybody's interested in hearing more about those, go check out the Archaeology Show, which Rachel and I host. And for the last like several weeks, we've been talking about all of our stuff in Greece, and we took a break for we're, we're recording this on October thirtieth. We took a break for a Halloween episode about some interesting vampire burials <laughs> or suspected vampire burials, which actually is a real thing, right? Over in Eastern Europe, yeah. especially. So yeah, people were buried in and in, in interesting ways because people actually thought they were vampires and were going to come back alive. So that was an interesting show. But our next one will be our final Greece episode. So if you're interested in any of that, go check it out. So And
2: so you had a real Budsman's holiday while you're there.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we haven't done this show for a little while. It's just been, you know, with Paul being gone and, and us being in Greece, it was just hard to get interviews scheduled and, and anything else. So we just decided to take a little break. And now I think we're back. We've got a couple interviews today, actually. And hopefully we can uh, keep this going through the winter and and, and get back on track. So... Speaking of which, today we have an interview with Gideon shalak and I'll have him say that because I probably got it wrong. But he's going to talk to us about a project that you know he's working on with the team and we'll hear all about it in a minute. But welcome to the show, Gideon.
3: Okay. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, no problem. So why don't you tell us about this? And, and while you're doing that, if people listening have the ability to look at the show notes, make sure you're not driving or something like that then take a look at that because there's a paper in here that you may or may not have access to, but there's also a website for this project called The Wall. And there's a lot of really great information on there that gives you some of this background that that Gideon's going to talk about. But Gideon, tell us about The Wall Project. Give us a, a little background of where this is and, and what it is.
3: Okay, maybe, maybe I'll say, first of all, that as usually in archaeology, this is a joint project. I'm working with people not only from the Hebrew University where I am, but also Mm -hmm. from Yale University, from the National University of Mongolia. So it's really a big team. So this is uh, first thing that's important to say. Uh, Second, uh, it is a project about, about walls. Walls that were built during the medieval period in Northeast China and in Mongolia. And maybe beco- before I, I start talking about the project, I would say that for me it's also a new a new topic because before that all my career I went I worked on uh, prehistoric uh, periods mostly in China North China Bronze Age mm-hmm. uh, beginning of the Neolithic was my last uh, project in China so uh, it's really something new for me but but there is something. If you could say prehistoric about those walls, those are huge array of walls, something like four thousand kilometers long altogether, wow. different different routes, but not a lot have been written about them. Although they were hmm. constructed probably, or we know that they were constructed sometimes in the medieval period, so from the 11th to the 13th century AD, but the the dynasties that built them did not describe their building or did not, there is not a lot of historic information. So to understand them is really to, to try to, to, to do things that we do in, in prehistory, to, to work from mm. the archaeology, uh, from the geography, some history and try to combine everything together and then understand why did people in the past created such a huge wall, uh, what is the purpose, What is the context? And I think those are questions that are actually relevant for today as well. Why do people build huge, you know, border fences, walls, trenches, all those things? It's not always about war. There are different reasons. And this is the kind of questions we we try to address. Mm. I have a question for you.
2: You know, I read the the article and also Chris, we've got to put Gideon's academia.edu page on because ah, yeah. that's where I got access to the article. <laughs> yeah, so everybody writing around their publishers that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, we want to get the uh, information out there, right? <laughs> but this set of walls that you're discussing, uh, or the, the one that you're mostly focused on, uh, is distinct from the Great Wall, the famous section that we've all seen in a million
3: tourist photos. In what way? Well, well, it is, I think, part of the same phenomena that in in mm-hmm. China mm-hmm. And, and parts of Mongolia since more than 2,000 years ago, people or dynasties, states, are building those huge, long you know, walls, trenches, fortifications, whatever. So this is certainly have this historic background, but this specific system that was built, uh, as I said, from the 11th to the 13th century, sometimes there and maybe in different episodes, is different in in some ways. First of all, it's location. It is not located in what is more or less the division line between Pastoralism and agriculture, or between the steppe and the agricultural area, it is, or many parts of it is, are deep inside the steppe. So you would think, mm. okay, wh- why are they building walls in, in very remote area areas and uh, very sparsely populated areas? So th- this is one one issue. The other issue is that you know we we all know about Chinese dynasties, right? But The two dynasties that were probably responsible for building those walls, either one of them or probably the two of them, you know, in different parts, are not, you know, Chinese dynasties per se. They were dynasties that controlled parts of China, but uh, the the leaders, the the elites, the the emperors were uh, from non-Chinese origins or non-Han origins. Uh, One dynasty is the Liao dynasty, which was funded by the people called Khitan from current Inner Mongolia. Okay. And the other one is the Jin dynasty that are Julchins from Manchuria, from northeast China and, and southern Siberia. So there are, you know, there are people that are not Chinese, They adopted some uh, Chinese institutes or, or ideas, but they also kept a lot of their own a nomadic uh, culture and tradition. So it's interesting. Why those people that have so strong inclination or so strong uh, cultural practice of of moving, of being nomads, of uh, those mm-hmm. kind of things? Why would they build wall to stop movement? As uh, <laughs> right. a big issue.
2: I have another question. Actually, that came up. You were talking about the, the <laughs> relative lack of of historical evidence. Now, Chinese culture at large is very famously a, a literary culture. Is it something particular about this Jin and Liao dynasties that they didn't record as much? And that's why we don't know about these walls except for archaeologically? Or is it something specific about the walls that, you know, and that the Jin and Liao cultures did, or dynasties rather, did did record things, but they just left this as a blind spot? Do you know?
3: Uh, They did record. The the whole issue of Chinese history is very uh, complex. But but yes, we have a history for the Liao, history for the Jin in Chinese. Both dynasties also use their own language. And maybe this is part of the issue that maybe part of the recordings were in their, you know, Khitan or Jin language, Georgian language, so uh, it didn't survive. It's not clear. But what is clear is that for the Liao, for sure, there is no mention even of, of wall construction. For the Jin, which is a later one, there is some some uh, mention, but it's not clear where, what, how big it was. So, so the information is very, very scarce. And part of what we do, if we start, you know, talking about the the methodology of 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 what what the project do, is partly we try to analyze the historic data uh, as a kind of of a big database. You know, not just reading, but really analyzing, really taking out. Every bit of information that might be relevant not only about wall construction but about you know border contacts uh, hunting climate climate is a big issue maybe climate has to do with with the fact that they decided to to construct the wall so so we we treat the history you know largely speaking not only the official history but other sources as a kind of of big data and try to analyze it in in ways that that we do today with you know all the the new technologies that are available for for data analysis. So this is one part. It's maybe not the main part, but it is one Mm -hmm. part of of our research.
1: Okay. Just wondering here, Paul mentioned the Great Wall, which of course, like he said, we've all seen pictures of that. What is the... Character and nature of the walls that you guys are specifically studying in this study. Is it similar? I mean, the Great Wall is so striking because of what it is, right? And, and what it looks like, which is probably why you see it in so many pictures. But <laughs> are we talking about similar things or, or, you know, smaller constructions or something like that? What do they look like?
3: Okay, yes, yes and no. It's not Mm -hmm. like the the wall that we know from picture, which is the Ming wall, which is the latest wall from the 16th, even 17th century AD, Mm. which is very different from everything else. It's big, it's used bricks, it's it's different. But uh, throughout Chinese history, as I said, from the 5th century BC, dynasties and state-constructed walls, those were more modest walls, not so high, And use other techniques like the stamped earth technique, which is a very Mm -hmm. traditional technique of building walls in China. And stones and and trench, make trenches. Trenches are very important. And this this wall, you can say, is, is part of this tradition. So it's pre predate, but all other uh, walls that I mentioned also predate the ming wall. So, so it's not the same. It's much more modest. But uh, we started our, our project by analyzing satellite images, air photos, so on. And, and you can see this, this line on those hmm. images. So, so it hmm. is visible, uh, partly because a lot of it is constructed in an area that was not Disturbed by a lot of human, popu- human activities. So it's not an agricultural area. That's why it's really well preserved. Um, but there is a line. So one, one question we ask, uh, like you said, is, is yes, w- what actually is it? How did it, did it look? you know, in the past. And one of the discoveries that we found in the recent expedition, including the one that, we, that just ended in, uh, in this, uh, during this summer, in August, was that maybe there was no real wall. I mean, there was no standing walls. There was a trench that was dug. It is maybe uh, four meters wide. In some places, it's two meters deep. And then they took the earth and piled it on the inside, on the southern side but they did not construct, you know, a standing wall. That's, that's our current hypothesis. Okay. On the other hand, throughout or along this wall, there are enclosures, there are, there are structures, some of them very big, some of them 100 meter by 100 meter or, or even uh, larger, and those did have uh, standing walls and very, very massive walls. because so there is a combination of, of a trench, maybe pile of earth, maybe in some places low wall, and and those, those camps or those fortresses or those whatever there was. And this is part of the question we want to understand or address. Okay, well, with
1: that, we'll take a break and come back on the other side and talk a little bit more about technology and how you guys were using that on this side. Back in a minute. Welcome back to episode two hundred and nine of the Architect Podcast, and we're talking to Gideon about the Wall Project. Let's get into the technological aspect of this. So, you mentioned remote sensing, GIS, some other stuff used on this project. Give us a quick overview of some of the technologies, common or otherwise. Which let me let me take an aside there. That's one thing we're talking about leading up to the show. Is like, oh well, we're not using anything really special. We're doing these things, which. Paul and I were like, well, that's awesome that that's kind of common these days that people are just using these techniques. Right. But we still think that even if it's not something crazy and brand new and something like that, everybody uses a suite of technologies in slightly different ways. And it's that it's that combined usage and the overall usage of things that that I find really interesting. And I know Paul does as well. And and exactly what kind of what you're getting out of that from an analytical standpoint. So so before we talk about what you got out of these things, let's talk about what you guys actually used besides, you know, shovels and trowels. (laughs) What other types of technologies did you use on this project?
3: Okay, so um, maybe I'll start by saying that this project is funded by the ERC, the European Research Council, which okay. provides us with really nice, nice funding, allow us to do a lot of the things we do, and and maybe as a background, I would say that and we talked about it before the show. This is a, a project that deals with, with something huge, you know, uh, 4,000 mm. kilometers of walls, fortresses, thousands of fortresses probably, other things. So how, how, do, you, how do you address those kind of issue, uh, issues? As archaeologists today, especially today, we are used to, to study very tiny, tiny places, you know, test pit, samples, uh, not even a whole site. And suddenly you have to, to address such a, a huge, a, a huge phenomenon. Myself, I did a lot of uh, regional surveys, so I had this uh, regional perspective, but still it's it's not something that really we, we do a lot. And then that's why when we started or I started thinking about this project and discuss with other people, we thought, okay, what kind of of method we can use to, to address our basic question, which is, as I said, why people build walls, why they did it, where they did it, what is the mm-hmm. ecological context and so on. So so the the first type of of, of method we use is 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 math methods that, that are, are used to, to in order to map this 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 whole thing. It's a huge thing. How do you map this? There is no Detailed map of those, those walls. They appear in different atlases, but very, very mm. rude kind of description. So we really use a lot of, of remote sensing, like you said, satellite images, corona images. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with this. On-ground surveys with drones, with air photos, different kinds of, of radars. You know, some places the wall is, is, is beneath the sand, so we want to locate it. You use different kind of, of uh, radar apparatuses that are today available also online. Even, you know, test Specific location we want to photo or to 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 have a satellite images. You can do it, and it's mm. not even very expensive today. That we are we didn't have good good images that we wanted. So this is one part of of our analysis. Another part is. On ground geophysics and, and attempts to to really uh, before excavating, trying to see what's what's below ground, trying to, to get some ideas because you know it's a, we have limited time that we are in the field. We go for one right. month. You know, we stay away. It's it's expensive. You have to to be really careful where you excavate. So we use and there is mm. a team from University of Pittsburgh who uh, twice came and tried to map it with magnometers, with a GPR ground penetrating radar, those kind of things. And I can talk about it more if you want. And then yeah. of course there are different dating methods. Dating mm. is very important. But you don't always have a good samples for carbon-14, which is, you know, the usual method. So, we also use uh, OSL, which is a ge- uh, way to date a geological sample, date uh, right. soil. So, we do that and, and, and other techniques like that. We also, you know, in attempt to understand what, what the structures that are associated with the wall were, what what were they useful? We have, for example, very big circles, you know, huge circles, like the, mm-hmm. uh, 150 meters in diameter. Why did they construct them? It looked like a kind of an area <laughs> kind of of, of of structures. So one of uh, the doctoral students, you know, a lot of the work is done by doctoral students. One of my doctoral students took a sample, soil samples from very, very systematically from one of those circles. And we are trying to find out there so is some kind of organic residue or evidence for that it, it was used as a, as a corals for animals or mm-hmm. other kind of mm-hmm. so, so chemical analysis the same is true for for analyzing poacher, residue analysis to see what people were eat, were eating what was the activities that was done so we do a lot of chemical analysis for uh, for a pot shirt, for other we, we just discovered in the last uh, summer in the excavation, a basket made of, of birch. So try to understand, you know, they have, you know, it's a basket. It's not usual to find w- what it was used for, why why mm-hmm. it was it was there. So so a lot of those kind of analyses that I guess are also quite common today. But but we have to, to combine all those lines of evidence, and then as you mentioned, you know, understanding the geographical context why this is very important for walls you know why they they selected to to build the wall to to dig the trench in this place and not another so uh, different types of of geographical analysis gis and i can talk more about about those those (laughs) kind of of analysis
2: i have a quick question for you then since you brought up radiocarbon dating how how confident are you of the contemporaneity of the different things you're analyzing here especially between that wall or the segments of the wall
3: and uh, and the, the large rectangular buildings and these very large circular enclosures. For most of them, I'm quite quite confident that they are from the same time. You can see that there is a, it's a systematic mm-hmm. effort. You know, you see that all mm-hmm. those... The enclosure, for example, in the northern line that we, we studied most, and this is the article you, you referred to, you have every 30 kilometers or 20, 30 kilometers, you have a cluster of structures. The structures all look more or less the same. You can see that there is a system here, and it's consistent. So I think that mm-hmm. the the association between the wall and the structure, or most of the structures, there are some that maybe are not, but most of them, is 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 not a big Problem. The problem of dating is that we, when you are talk talking about historic periods, it's not like prehistory that you know one hundred year here and there will not affect your analysis. Here, every fifty years can can really can really right. matter, can really make a difference. So, how do you come up with with dates that are are so accurate that maybe are on the verge of the of the you know the uh, error range of, of the system? And that's why why you have to. to to think about it very carefully what what you date and how you you understand the dating that you get
1: from a mapping standpoint you know, you mentioned in the beginning that the the mapping, you know, these things weren't very well mapped altogether, right? So, coming up with a comprehensive map of of all the walls or as much as you can would be a good idea. Where are you guys at in this process? I'm curious. Uh, how many field seasons have you done? How many more do you think you have to go as far as getting this uh, this whole project mapped? Because it sounds like a massive effort.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so we are not planning on on visiting all the locations. Most of the mapping is done. We started with the existing data, so we started with a big Atlases, but you know, maps of one by, by, by mm-hmm. 2000 kilometers or something like that's very, very large scale and then try to find those lines on the uh, existing satellite images, which is not always easy because here again, you can have arrows in the range of 100 kilometers. So, you know, our graduate okay. student was okay. sitting sitting on those images and trying to locate and follow the different lines and, and finding new lines and, and all of this. And this effort is, is almost finished. We are now working on, a, on one segment that is in the Gobi Desert, So further to the west and south of what we worked until today, and we are not sure that this segment is actually part of the world that we are studying or something else. So we we are mapping it and coming May, we will visit parts of it and try to, to understand if it's actually connected or not connected to the system we are studying. So so we, that's that's how we work. We, we do the mapping. We use all the different sources and try to be as accurate as we can, mapping not only the, the line of the wall and trench, but also uh, the structures that are uh, are associated with it, and then select some points and visit them and study them, do a survey, do test excavation, excavations, and then we go to the next phase and, and do another more maybe detailed excavations and selected sites. So it's a kind of three-stage system of of fieldwork. I imagine we will do it for the next, for the coming three years. That's more or less the budget that I have now. And then, then we'll see, we'll see how much we can get.
2: I'm curious, looking at the map, it, we're talking north of, uh, of Beijing, and these wall segments cross <laughs> Mongolia, part of Russia, and China. Are, are you able to cross those borders in the study, or is all your work being focused in Mongolia, the actual physical on-the-ground work?
3: Yes, so far we only did fieldwork in Mongolia. You know, my previous work, my previous experience is mostly in China, so I have very good connections in China, and I hope Mm -hmm. to go back and and study some of the segments, or most of the segments are actually in China, and they're very interesting, and some of them are quite different from what we studied so far, so I I do hope to to do some work in China, in cooperation, of course, with Chinese archaeologists. And I, I already started negotiating this. The part, the, the small part in Russia, I, I don't think I will go there. But, but aside <laughs> from that, you know, we are it's, it's China and Mongolia, and we we do work in in both uh, places. But again, you cannot you cannot do everything. You have to 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 develop a strategy, and this is part of the the, the idea of how to work on such big phenomena. A strategy: how to sample, how to map, how to to get the information you need from the limited amount of time you have. And it's always limited.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Well, our time is limited here too. So let's take a break and then we'll wrap up this discussion on the other side. Back in a minute.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6.
1: Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item
0: at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. ba da ba ba So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify.
2: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen.
1: Welcome back for the final segment of the Architect podcast, episode 209, here with Gideon talking about the wall project and Well, China, Mongolia. And I had a question. You mentioned OSL dating. And I know people have used that when you like, you know, turn over a rock or something like that that's been sitting for hundreds, if not thousands of years (laughs) and and hasn't moved since. Then you can do some dating techniques based on that, which made me think, you know, these walls are, I mean, prominent. They're hard to miss, right? So people living after wall construction, even a hundred years, a couple hundred years later, or any time later, is there any evidence that these like some of the construction of the walls were repurposed or maybe added to. And then, you know, can you see that in the construction through some of your excavations or just other analysis, you know, trying to understand the different phases of building or, or deconstruction? You know what I mean? Yes.
3: Yeah, so, so we do have two very interesting examples so far of people using the, not the wall, but the, the enclosure, the structures as a kind of a burial ground. So this is oh. a prominent feature in the landscape. This is a very flat landscape. You see it from far away, and they were digging a graves into into those structures that we have now actually. We're just in the process of finishing a paper on one of those graves, which is not a big grave, but it has a lot of findings, including uh, fabric, silk, wood, organic materials, of course, uh, bronze, gold, everything you want, glass. So, so it's really interesting, kind of a microcosmos. You can, uh, from one one grave, and make different analyses, seeing where those artifacts are coming from. But yes, so people were... were uh, reacting to those things because they are very prominent in the landscape, and this is a landscape where you don't have a lot of, of those kind of things, uh, you know, not a lot of engine right. constructions. So, yes, but, but still, I think OSL is useful. The problem with OSL is it's not that accurate, or the error range are very, very big mm. for, for the kind mm-hmm. of question we're asking. Still, it is a way to date. The, the walls, the, the 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 trenches, the ditches, how, sure. you know, when when they were filled and so on, and it gave us some some indication. And also, I didn't talk about the, the ecological aspect of this project, but you also have an ecological leg. We are, want to understand if there was some ecological conditions that that are part of the reason why people constructed those walls so we can get a lot of evidence from the earth we take from the from the ditches and date them and see differences changes in the pollen changes in the things that were accumulated in the ditch and also we do some coring in lakes nearby lakes to understand the specific Mm. uh, period of of construction so this is another Mm. whole issue that we didn't discuss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, just to to point out, because our, our I'm sure our audience knows this, but, you know, even if the OSL dating has got some wide error bars on it, in conjunction with other things, it's the whole suite of things that you're talking about here, you know, that everything adds a little bit of a piece to the puzzle. You know what I mean? So uh, if that was the only dating method you were using, we'd have some questions, but <laughs> it's not. And it's just <laughs> one piece of the big puzzle. And I love that, right? So even though you know that, hey, you know, maybe this isn't going to be very accurate, but it's going to be something we do because it'll still tell us some information, right?
3: And also, of course, of course, you always, and this is something that I think people understand now, you cannot rely on one date, even if it's the more sure. accurate date. You have to take a lot of dates. You have to do statistics. You have to see, right. you know, what, where are the problems? So taking many dates and, and factoring in other factors. We have uh, coins, for example. We have uh, shirts that we, sometimes we can date, especially porcelain, Chinese porcelain. Uh, can be uh, quite dated by mm-hmm. the patrons. So, so all of it together, you, 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 are, you are correct. It can give us a maybe more accurate and complete uh, picture of what's going on.
2: Right. So maybe we should pivot now because you've told us a lot about how you're doing your work and where you're doing your work and what you're studying. And what have you learned so far? What have you uh, revealed in terms of wh-
3: where and why and how these walls were, instru- were constructed? Yes yeah, so so, so one, one of the main issues is, is actually why and is it or maybe I'll, I'll frame it uh, differently, is this war all about war? Was it a kind of you know a line of defense against Mongolian invasions or invasion uh, from from the north or did it meant to do other things? and and one way to, to think about it is to think about idealized way of how people construct, Border defense. So for example, if you, you think about border defense, you think about the wall that is as meant to be in a p- position where it's difficult to cross it. Also mm-hmm. the fortresses that accompanied it should be on higher ground, you know, looking over the, the fence, places where it's easy to defend, places where you can see the enemy coming from far away, right? So those kind of, of assumptions. And we try to check it systematically, not only looking at one example, but really look at, for example, we, uh, that's what we did for the northern line that we studied. Where are those enclosure positioned? Are they positioned on higher, higher points? Are there, you know, the ideal point for, for seeing enemy coming? And the, the, the surprising maybe result was that, no, they are in the most unorthodox or or not unrelated to defense location very low places near the Mm. near the streams uh, it's places where you cannot uh, see the wall very well the last point where we we worked actually this year which is not in the northern line but in the uh, one of the south more southern lines we excavated in in one structure like this and the structure is like maybe 300 meters away from the wall, but you cannot see the wall from the structure because it is on, on a slope that is, you know, a- away from the wall, and there is a kind of small hill between them. So this is not a place where people will position their uh, defensive fortresses and so on. And that makes us uh, try to, to think of, of different types of explanation. And one explanation is, of course, a movement. Where do people, people move in the landscape? Not armies. Armies, of course, would move, you know, everywhere, and we'll try to surprise you, and we'll try to come in in unexpected mm-hmm. location. But people think about herders, pastoral nomadic people. Where would they move? And and we think that if we analyze the movement, movement patterns, and you can do those things with GIS, analyze the movement patterns of people. Those structures are located where people would cross cross the, the line, cross the ditch mm. line or cross the, the wall line. And so maybe there are more the, the whole system is more about controlling the movement of people in, but also maybe out. You know, a lot of those dynasties did not want their people to go out, to join, let's say, the the nomadic uh, on the more nomadic people outside to, of the wall. So so controlling, maybe taxing. Things like mm. that I think, become become more important when you start to, to look at the big Big patterns. Where, where are the where is the wall located? Uh, uh, where are the structures located? How they are related to roads, even current roads, because the, the the landscape and the movement, the type of movement, didn't change much. People are still riding horses in those places, so you can you can follow those things. But I think as long as you do it on a large scale, in a systematic way, and so on. Uh, another another method we use in with GIS is, is to look at uh, view viewshed analysis so what would you see from each structure what what where, where are you looking mm-hmm. what, what is your right. you know, the, the landscape you can view and again it's not a pattern that is very useful for for uh, defending uh, borderline but maybe more for controlling movement maybe mm-hmm. associating with water sources you know with wells with springs. And so on. So, so trying to think about those, those issues, of course, bring, bring more questions. So, OK, what did the people do with people that le- lived in, the, in those structures? How did they survive? Were they pastoralists or were they trying to do agriculture? And so those kind of, of new questions that you can address with other, other types of methods.
2: That's interesting. So correct me if I've misinterpreted this, but it sounds like you're arguing that it's not for defensive purposes where you'd stop somebody from coming through. It's for regulatory purposes where you're you know, controlling how many and at what times and how quickly these nomadic populations go one way or the other.
3: Yeah, I don't want to sound too too deterministic or too strong. You know, Maybe part mm-hmm. of it was uh, in order at least to, to to control and against invasions and so on, but but it seems to me that most of it was uh, trying to yes control and know who's who is coming, who is moving around, maybe stop but not stop armies. It's not it's not a wall, you know. Even if we think about the wall as a, as a trench. Let's say four meter wide and uh, two meter deep, and some some additional wall or uh, or earth pile. This is not something that you know the uh, Genghis Khan and his army would not cross very quickly. So so it's not, it would not right. stop them. Yes. But but if you want to to stop like movement, are uh, there are. This is where climate comes to the to the picture. There, it is a, a period probably with a lot of climatic anomalies, especially very cold uh, season, cold spells. So mm-hmm. maybe there was a push for people to move from the north southward, and the dynasty did not want all those refugees, let's say, entering or at least wanted to control them and maybe want to make some profit out of those people coming with their herds. And so so I think we have to think about it in this way. And of course, again, it's very relevant to think that we see today in the world, you know, people, a lot of the walls, you know, built, you know, Trump wall and so on are not against armies. You know, Mexican army will not invade the US, uh, I think. Mm. But it, it is meant to, to control the movement of, of people. And And I think this is, Mainly what we see in the in the wall system, but we are still you know studying, so it's not a conclusive answer, I would say.
1: Right, you know, question I was thinking about because the the first thing I think of with walls, especially of this type, not necessarily like the Great Wall, the big fortifications, but you know the the smaller ones like the ones that we're talking about here. You know, I've done a lot of work in Nevada in the United States, and we've done a lot of reading and other places in the in the world too. And a lot of times walls like that are used for Property lines, you know, just, just marking some, the edge of somebody's territory or something like that. I guess even farmers or something, you know, or not really farmers, but people with herds and, and things like that and just marking lines. Is there any cultural, historical evidence that they would have done that at
3: these time frames? I, I don't think so. You know, first of yeah. all, those are, as, again, the, other, the, the step area. You don't see any structures, you know, historic, prehistoric structures. There are few, like, burials other type of this type of monuments but you don't see buildings you don't see uh, many there are some cities but, but very, very few so so I, I don't think this is a property line per se but it is uh, and it is a state level a dynasty level a kind of, of project so so it is it is not uh, you know on the local level it is planned from 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 above somewhere and it's it's still a lot of work to do those kind of things and to bring all those people to the step deep into the step you know feed them and so on so it's a lot of work but but even if it's a lot of work it doesn't mean that it's only only about about war and uh, one interesting thing that you mentioned you know examples from from around the world When I started doing this project and started reading about walls and especially about trenches, I found out that there are a lot of other types of examples, not only in China, Mongolia, and the very Mm -hmm. famous walls, but also in Central Asia, you know, in Iran, Sasanian walls. There are in in Britain, you know, the the Ophodiacs, all all those kind of things, not only the the Roman limits, which is also, you know, a question: whether it was used only for war or, or also for those kind of things that I was talking about. So, so looking at the, at the you know global perspective is also something uh, very interesting for me. And, and as I said, also you know comparing to to modern examples, maybe we can get some ideas and, and check them on the archaeological record.
1: Indeed. All right. Well, we are just about out of time here. So, Gideon, I'm just wondering, what's next for you guys on this project? Where are you going from here?
3: Uh, so, as I said, we, we will uh, work on a line in in, uh, in the Gobi Desert, south of yeah. where we work and, and try to, to understand if it is connected or not. We want to go back to some of the places we already visited and, and excavate more detail, especially inside the, the structure and try to understand better how they were used and so on. Uh, as I said, I want to go to China and work on some of the lines there with uh, uh, Chinese colleagues. And... My idea for the next project is to actually to look at at the cities that exist on the step. There are cities in the step, and some of them may be connected to this line. So, so this is really maybe the the next project I'm i was thinking about.
1: Okay, fascinating. Well, we'll have to have you back on later on then when you've got more okay. uh, <laughs> more to say about this. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And like I said, anytime you guys want to come back on, please do so. And we've got another interview Paul and I are doing right after this. So a lot of good stuff coming up for the Architect podcast for our audience. So stick around and, and stay with us for the rest of the, the winter and fall anyway. So thanks
2: a lot. See you guys next time. Thank you, Gideon. That was very fascinating.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at Archaeology Podcast Network.com and paul at lugol.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.